Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Philip K. Dick, in his address, The Android and the Human, is going to focus in part on differentiating the two from each other. And you might say, well, how can that be difficult? Androids are androids, robots of some sort, human beings are living, breathing entities. Obviously, they're different from each other. And Dick says, well, it's not quite so simple. There are a number of ways in which human beings can be, as he says, instruments, means rather than ends, and hence to me, analogs of machines in the bad sense, in the sense that although biological life continues, metabolism goes on, the soul, for lack of a better term, is no longer there, or at least no longer active. The reduction of humans to mere use, men made into machines, serving a purpose which, although good in an abstract sense, has for its accomplishment, employed what I regard as the greatest evil imaginable, the placing on what was a free man who laughed and cried and made mistakes and wandered off into foolishness and play, a restriction that limits him, despite what he may imagine or think, to the fulfilling of a name outside of his own personal, however puny, destiny. And this is something that he thinks hasn't developed as something unique within our late modern technological age, but we're at significantly greater risk of this happening to ourselves and to those we care about and to other human beings more generally, in part because of the development and proliferation of technology, but also because of what we can call techniques or modes of using the human being, organizing what he'll actually call a science. And he talks about production of inauthentic human activity and governments and other things like them, which could include, for example, corporations in our own time, have developed something that they can call sciences to make this happen. And he asks a key question that we should be very concerned with. He says, I would like to ask this, what is it in our behavior that we can call specifically human, that is special to us as a living species? And then by contrast, what is it, at least up till now, we can consign as merely machine behavior? Or now notice what he says here, insect behavior, reflex behavior by extension. So Dick thinks that at least at a certain level of animality, animals are basically like machines and insects, he thinks, are very much like that. But we move up into the higher orders and we get to, you know, the mammals. And I think he would probably in the present include birds in there as well. And then we get to the distinctively human. So what separates humans from androids? And a very early answer that he provides is when he's talking about youth and their rebelliousness and what is 
is going on in this resistance. And he says that one of the things that's central to human beings, even if they're not particularly important human beings, is a kind of irreplaceability. He says, even the most base schemes of human beings are preferable to the most exalted tropisms of machines. And he says, I think this right here is one of the valid insights possessed by some of the new youth. Cars, even police cars, are expendable. They can be replaced. They're really all alike. It is the person inside who, when gone, cannot be duplicated at any price. Even if we don't like him, we cannot do without him. And once gone, he will never come back. And then too, if he is made into an android, he will never come back, never be again human, or anyhow, most likely will not. So irreplaceability. Irreplaceability doesn't mean that every single person is a delicate snowflake and the cosmos, you know, needs each one in its single place. It's not that sort of thing. There's just a more raw, you can't replace this person, even though they might be a dork or a schmuck or a terrible person, you can't effectively replace them with an android unless they've already become like an android themselves. So that's one. And then we've talked about, here's the second criterion. We've talked about this means and ends thing already a little bit earlier. And he says that becoming what I call, for lack of a better term, an android means to allow oneself to become a means. That is something that is used in order to produce something else. And the means could be somebody else's pleasure. It could be productivity. It could be keeping the other androids or human beings in line. It could be whatever you like. But if you're an android, you are a mere means, a tool, an instrument. And he says to become a means or to be pounded down, manipulated, made into a means without one's knowledge or consent. The results are the same. And he goes on and says, androidism requires obedience and predictability. And that's what we want of means so that we can actually use them without thinking too much about the means that we're relying upon. You know, very often we have a tool and we're not even paying attention to the tool until something goes wrong. And then we're like, why is this piece of chalk not writing the way that I want on my blackboard. Now we're paying attention to it, right? There's been a breakdown in the mechanism. But we don't ask the chalk, what would you like? Do you have any goals, aspirations, dreams, preferences? No, we just make it do its work as a means. The third thing that he talks about, and here he brings up a term from psychology of the time, schizoid, which was used both as a diagnosis and in the broader culture. It's kind of dropped out of parlance in, in the broader culture now. And he says that the schizoid is similar to the android. How so? He says in the field of abnormal psychology, the schizoid personality structure is well-defined. In it, there is a continual paucity of feeling, a lack of feeling, a lack where there should be something there. And then he goes on and says, this person thinks rather than feels their way through life. And he says there's a certain parallel between the android personality and the schizoid. Both have a mechanical reflex quality. I once heard a schizoid person express himself in all seriousness this way. I receive signals from others, but I can't generate any of my own until I get recharged by an injection. I am, I swear, quoting exactly. Imagine viewing oneself and others this way. Signals. 
the person has reified, that has turned themselves into a thing, himself entirely along with everyone around him. Here clearly he says the soul is dead or has never lived. So thinking, being cerebral, being cognitive, lacking the affective or having a flattening of affect is another sign of the android. And you can think, you know, how you know we've got all these ideas about we're going to, you know, make robots or AIs that have genuine feelings. How the hell is that going to work? We don't even have consensus in psychology about what the basic emotions are. There's a number of different theories out there. And yet the rest of us were able to, you know, go along. I, for example, I'm kind of excited right now talking about this. I think you could probably grasp the passion that I have for these ideas and for Philip K. Dick stuff. That is a sort of non-Android response that an Android might be able to mimic, but probably could never understand. Another fourth criterion that he gives us, the android has an inability to make exceptions. And here he says, perhaps this is the essence of it. The failure to drop a response when it fails to accomplish results, repeating it over and over again. And he says, lower life forms are skillful in offering the same response continually as are flashlights. And now he's, he says something really quite interesting. He's got this thing about a pigeon. He says, an attempt was made to use a pigeon as a quality control technician on an assembly line. Part after part, endless thousands of them passed the pigeon hour by hour and the keen eye of the pigeon viewed them for deviations from the acceptable tolerance. The pigeon could discern a deviation smaller than that of a human doing the same quality control. So when he saw a part was mismade, it pecked a button, rejected the part, dropped a grain of corn to the pigeon as a reward. The pigeon could go 18 hours without fatigue and loved its work. Even when the grain corn failed, the pigeon continued eagerly to reject substandard parts. And now Dick says, if I was that pigeon, I would feel cheated. When I felt hungry, I would just peck the, the button and reject a part to get my grain of corn. That would have occurred to me after a long period passed in which I discerned no faulty parts. What would happen to the pigeon if, God forbid, no parts were ever faulty? The pigeon would starve. Integrity, under such circumstances, would be suicidal. Really, the pigeon had a life and death interest in finding faulty parts. What would you do if you were in that? Would ethics win out or the need to survive? The android would say, the android mind, I am dying of hunger, but I'll be damned if I reject a perfectly good part. And Dick says the authentically human mind would get bored and reject a part now and then at random just to break the monotony. And he says, this helps us to see the difference between the android and the human. The android can't make exceptions. Or if they make exceptions, it's got to be according to some rule. And then we could say, are there exceptions to that rule? And we can go on from there. Then Dick brings up another thing, and he uses an example that I'm not going to go into here because it's quite lengthy, but he talks about an essential key revealing the authentically human. Now, the distinctions that we've been making up until this point assume sort of a nature already in place, a human nature. And Dick says, you know, we do have a human nature and we need to understand it because no matter where we go, if we go to the stars, we're bringing that human nature along with us. But, and here's where Dick is kind of existentialist, that human nature is not something we can just simply take for granted. It is something that we walk into, we enter into, we develop into through how we are in situations. He says, this is not only an intrinsic property of the organism, the human being, but the situation in which it finds itself. That which happens to it, that which it is confronted by, pierced by, and must deal with. Certain agonizing situations create on the spot 
a human, where a moment before there was only, as the Bible says, clay. And he says something very interesting here. This is, you know, a possibility of our technological age. He says, this is also something that we can see in the medieval pietas. The medieval pietas shows the dead Christ cradled in the arms of his mother. Two faces, actually, that of a man, that of a woman. Oddly, in many of these pietas, the face of Christ seems much older than his mother. It is as if an ancient man is held by a young woman. She has survived him, and yet she came before him. He has aged through his entire life cycle, and he goes on and says, he has not survived it. It shows on his face. She looks now, perhaps as she always did, not timeless in the classic sense, but able to transcend what has happened. In some way, they have experienced it together, but they have come out of it differently. It was too much for him. It destroyed him. Perhaps the information to be gained here is to realize how much greater capacity a woman has for suffering. That is not that she suffers more than a man, but that she can endure where he can't. Christ may die on the cross and the human race continues, but if Mary dies, it's all over. And then he goes on and he says, I've seen seen young people survive things that would have been too much for me. Their humanness as they pass through these ordeals developed as an equation between them and their situation. I don't mean to offer, now this is very important, the mushy doctrine that suffering somehow ennobles, that it's somehow a good thing. You want to hear this about geniuses. They wouldn't have been geniuses if they hadn't suffered. I merely mean that possibly the difference between what I call the android mentality and the human. Now here's a beautiful phrase is that the latter passed through something the former did not, or at least passed through it and responded differently, changed, altered what it did, and hence what it was. It became, I sense the android repeating over and over again, some limited reflex gesture like an insect raising its wings, threateningly over and over again or emitting a bad smell. But caught in sudden trouble, the organism that is made more human, that becomes precisely at that moment human, wrestles deep within itself and out of itself to find one response after another as each fails. And so this is something that is hard to, you know, define, but is essential to the human. Now, he finishes up at the very end by sketching out for us a funny situation and then following it up with another one. He talks about a computer and the computer, you know, might be churning out things like in the beginning was the end and the end was the beginning. And he says, perhaps when a computer is ready to churn forth one or the other of these two statements, an Android operating the computer will make the decision, right? So the Android is in a certain sense superior to a mere computer. And then he says, although if I'm correct about the Android mentality, it will be unable to decide and will print out both at once, creating a self-canceling nothing, which will not even serve as a primordial chaos. There's no creativity there. An android, says, might, however, be able to handle this, capable of some sort of decision-making power. It might conceivably pick one statement or the other as, quote, correct, but no android. And you will recall and realize by this term I'm summing up that which is not human. No android would think to do what a bright-eyed little girl I know did, something a little bizarre, certainly ethically questionable in several ways, at least in any traditional sense, but to me, truly human, in that it shows to me a spirit of merry defiance, of spirited, though not spiritual, bravery and uniqueness. And what is this? One day while driving in her car, she found herself following a truck carrying cases of Coca-Cola bottles, case after case, stacks of them. And when the truck parked, she parked behind it and loaded the back of her own car with cases, as many cases of bottles of Coca-Cola as she could get in. So for weeks afterwards, she and her friends had all the Coca-Cola they could drink free. And when the bottles were empty, she carried them to the store and turned them in for the deposit refund, right? And Dick sees this as sort of like distinctively human. It's something an android 
it wouldn't even occur to it to do that unless you programmed, you know, thief Android or something like that. And then it would merely be acting out of its programming or circuitry. So this shows this spontaneity of thinking in terms of means and ends and actually serving the ends of oneself and one's friends shows another way of distinguishing the humans from the androids. So Dick has given us a number of very important considerations for thinking about how it is that human beings, so long as they haven't been reduced to a analog of an android, so long as that's not the case, how they differ from androids and can be expected to differ probably going deep into our future where Dick says we actually live, this distinction will probably continue to hold. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>